And I'm Kelsey. And it's time to hate watch with us. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. And this week, nope, two weeks from now, <laughs> nope. And in some amount of time. <laughs> something, something, dick joke. <laughs> something, 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 uh, dicks. <laughs> nope. Um. <laughs> Let's keep this intro. <laughs> Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. And this Sunday, Game of Thrones is coming back to tell us what's what. You see how smooth that was? So smooth. (laughs) So smooth. (laughs) Although it lacks the dick jokes that I've become accustomed to. (laughs) Well, you know, not everybody can bro as hard as the Game of Thrones writer's room. That's for sure. So this week on Hate Watch, we are going to be doing our Game of Thrones preview, getting everybody ready for season six. And the hellstorm that it will be for all of us this entire summer. And then in our B segment, we've got a very exciting finale. It will be part five of Rom Comtication. So get hype. I'm hype. We just need each other. (laughs) (laughs) So season six is starting. And to be completely honest, I don't even know where we are in time and space anymore with this show. And like HBO in like what is maybe peak HBO is trying to pull some weird penultimate season shit with season six. We're like, we're only getting what half of the season order right now. And then they're going to do like another half later. And then 16 spinoffs, yes. And like 95,000 spinoffs. So that's tough. That's real, real tough. I think the thing that's most unforgivable to me about this is not that there's a lag time between like the first half of the season and the last half of the season just on face value because Breaking Bad did it too, which was also dumb, but whatever. Yeah. But that like, it's the last season. We're so close. We're so close to the end. Just, like, take me out of my misery, Game of Thrones. (laughs) Please. Please have some mercy. Ugh. I know. It's like, George R. R. Martin just doesn't know a world without torture. That's correct. So let's, let's torture ourselves and talk about what happened this past season. Yeah, what happened in season five? We don't really remember. (laughs) (laughs) This is us recapping. Uh... Cersei nuclear bombed King's Landing. Yep. And Tommen jumped out the window. Yeah, he died. And then there was the battle. Yep, there was the battle. Uh, HBO, like, blew their wad on all of their CGI for the next 10 years. <laughs> like, there's some serious credit card debt there. Uh, and... Oh, did you point out that Sam went to a library? No, but that was my favorite plot point. I think what I like about Sam is that he's so pure. And he's so pure. Kind of has nothing to do with the entire story. But yet they give him screen time, like one every seven episodes. <laughs> well, 
I would love actually to go through the episodes of season five and calculate how much time they spent on each subplot in total, because I don't think any given subplot gets more than 10 minutes over the entire season. Well, so I read an article and I cannot remember who wrote it now, but I read an article that it was talking about how the problem with Game of Thrones is exactly that, where instead of having everyone together, they splinter every single person apart on their own mission where they never cross paths again. So every time people splinter off more and more, it's like a tree where they then have their own splintered off story and then like another tertiary character can split off from that. And so it ends up being just a mess of little subplots everywhere. And that's the biggest problem with the way that show is structured. So shouts to whatever smart person wrote that and sorry I ruined it. (laughs) And expressed all of our (laughs) thoughts and feelings. I mean, the other problem is that for three seasons now, we've been hurtling towards a convergence where it does become an ensemble cast again. So we're hurtling towards all the remaining Stark children None of the Stark children died. We're hurtling towards all of the Stark children coming back together. No, there's got to be a dead Stark bee. Probably. Yeah, wasn't one of the... There was, like, one who was on their way to the tree. Oh, Rob died. Rob died. And Rob, remember that time? Red wedding. (laughs) Hashtag red wedding. Yeah, Rob dead. He's the only one, though. No, there were, like, 17. Now there's, like, two. Stark children? How many Stark children are alive? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How many Starks does it take to screw in a light bulb? I'm on category status alive in the Game of Thrones wiki. <laughs> I just want all of you to take a second and really reflect on that. On the Game of Thrones wiki, they had to dedicate a separate category to who's alive and who's dead. It's 21 pages. Why? Of characters still alive? Yeah, hold on. Let me do alphabetical. George R. R. Martin, if you're out there, that is too many fucking characters. George R. R. Martin, if you're out there, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> like, something, 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 really clever dick joke, fuck you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so while you look for that, I'll finish my thought, which is we're hurtling towards the Stark children coming back together. We're hurtling towards understanding the prophecy of the three-headed dragon, which most likely connects Daenerys, Tyrion, and Jon. And we're hurtling toward the great battle for the Iron Throne, which will put Cersei, Daenerys, and the North, presumably led by either Sansa or Jon, at war with each other. So there is a convergence coming, in theory. Yeah, for sure. But I wonder if, you know, we've talked at length about House of Cards making the slog necessary so that they can then just pound you with plot at the end of the season. (laughs) (laughs) That was a fun pun. Um, (laughs) I know what I'm about. Um, And so I wonder if similarly, this is what Game of Thrones is trying to do, except over the course of too many fucking seasons. Yeah. Instead of, you know, just a few episodes. Right. Um, Also, I think in addition to Rob, Rickon, Rickon? Oh, Rickon died. You're right. Yeah. Everyone else is still alive. Okay. It's only two Starks. And did you know that Bran's full name is Brandon? Yeah. Like a normal Brandon person, the but they have to call him Bran, like Raisin Bran. Well, but it's spelled funny. It's like B-R-A-N something. D-O-N, according to this Wikipedia page. I thought there was like a random E in there somewhere. Either way, just call the person by their name and don't make it more confusing. 
George R.R. Well, R. Martin. he's named after Bran the Builder, who I think was also a Stark, maybe, but that's the guy who built the wall. Yeah, who was also named Brandon. Okay, but they called him Bran. Well, just don't. Dude, they named a kid Rickon, <laughs> and you're going to take issue with Bran. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> anyway, regardless. So, at some point in season six, as long as we're speculating wildly... I suspect we're going to have to deal with Sir Franzone and his syphilis or ringworm or whatever he had. <laughs> Sexually contracted disease. His, yeah. His, his fish scale syndrome. Yeah. I keep forgetting about that, but it keeps coming up. Yeah. Well, yeah. So he, he contracts the skin problem, his dermatitis, <laughs> and, and Daenerys finds out just as she was about to somewhat either kill him or forgive him. It's hard to know. And then he's trying to pledge his loyalty or some shit, and she's like, you can prove your loyalty by leaving and trying to cure your STD. Yep. (laughs) And then she, like, holds his hand really thoughtfully for a little while and cries because it's presumed that this will be the last time they see each other because he's probably going to die from all the gangrene. And the friend zoning. That can kill (laughs) you. You just got a real bad case of the friend zone there. So Sir Friend Zone had like ridden off into the abyss. And I think he he had an adventure of some kind last season. Yeah, but I don't recall what it was. I feel like I I remember him crouching in the bushes. Didn't he help with her when she was trapped by the Dothraki people? Like, didn't he do something with that other guy who was kind of hot? Oh. The Raphael of Game of Thrones? Yeah. Ew, don't. Do not drag Raphael's good name into this. Excuse me. He's the same type of person. He's like pretty but vapid and useless. I will not stand for this. This is basically blasphemy. All right. (laughs) My being. You come into my house. (laughs) You take my beautiful love interests. Um, So, yeah, we're going to have to deal with her friend zone. Arya is back. Also, did she rejoin them at that battle or is she not back yet? I don't, I can't remember. She made it to like Heron Hall and killed a guy. I literally have no idea what happened. Um, <laughs> and then, oh, she killed Walder Frey. She killed Walder Frey. Yeah. Was that at the end of last season or was that at the end of yeah. season four? I think it was the end of this season. Oh, okay. Uh, I guess it would have been season five. I literally can't even remember what season we're on. And then Bran is the new Three-Eyed Raven? Yep, that happened. Okay. Um, All right. Uh, the, the crazy witch lady is just banished and riding around oh, aimlessly. She, the red lady who's my nightmare. Is she not hanging out with John anymore? No, she like, didn't she get sent away again? Oh, Maybe. Dear listeners, I swear we've watched every episode of the show. We just hate it so much. There is a there is a trail on Twitter of live tweets to prove that we have watched this entire season. All that I got out of this season, though, was so this season, um, season six. No, yeah, yeah, season six. I told you, I keep forgetting. Was the the season where the show finally outpaced the books? So there was no book to form the basis of season six, the writers were on their own. And it was so fucking blatantly clear. Was it the first episode or was it episode two where we get 10 minutes of Dothraki making your mom jokes around the campfire? 
Oh, it was so bad. I want to say it was episode one. And as we've already said, this show only has time to spend two minutes on any given plot per episode. But sure, let's sit around a campfire and talk about your dick for three minutes. Let's right. do that. Because then there was that other guy in the field two episodes later. Yeah, 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 where they start sticking their fingers up each other's butts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for this prestige programming, HBO. <laughs> well... As we once wisely said in our Slack channel, the golden age of television is not in Westeros. That's for damn sure. (laughs) Yeah, so bottom line, we know going into season seven that there's going to be some more battles. I will eat my hat if they can increase the body count from the Battle of Winterfell, because even that was trying to up the ante from the Battle of Blackwater Bay. But they're going to try because they're so shallow. I don't think they can. My guess is going to be that they don't have much left in a single battle, and that they are maybe, instead of trying to concentrate in one battle, are going to hit us with a lot of battles of a similar quality of Battle of Winterfell. But on a smaller scale? Per battle, but in totality. I don't want to watch, like, six episodes or whatever of just battles, though. That's so boring. It's kind of what it looked like from the trailer. Like, the trailer showed something in Dragonstone, something presumably at King's Landing, something in the north, something at the wall. You see the Unsullied set up shields, like, multiple times, which is presumably different battles. You see a couple of different, like, infantry lines of Lannisters. You see the dragons flying over, like, drone footage in several different places. When is the, like, R plus whatever equals whatever thing happening? R plus L equals J. Well, so we discovered that last season. Right, but when are they going to discover it? John knows it already, doesn't he? I don't know. Bran knows it. So Bran had his vision and then broke the space-time continuum and killed Hodor. And we got a Hodor origin story. Yeah. And he learned that R plus L equals J. Right. But did they know or are they going to like... I guess John doesn't know because there was this whole thing at the end of the season after the Battle of Winterfell because Sansa is presumed to be the rightful heir at that point of Winterfell. And then there's this awkward thing between the two of them because John won the battle and kind of wants to take over as Lord of Winterfell. But really it falls to Sansa. But we all know that John is actually a Stark at the end of the day, and therefore is the rightful heir. Right. Are we hurtling towards, like, a Frank and Claire Underwood between Sansa and Jon? Uh, I don't know. Yikes. I don't think so. Mega yikes. But also, like, why do they all want Winterfell? Because of the North and the First of Men and stuff. Well, yeah, but if I know the White Walkers are coming for me, I want to be the lord of the, like, Caribbean island that's so far away from Winterfell. Dorne? Sure. Well, so here's here's the only thing that I appreciate from the Game of Thrones universe, and I, I actually have internalized this on, like, a fan level. So there's all of these dynamics in the show about the difference between, like, Northwesteros and Southwesteros. Yeah. And, like, I'm a New Englander through and through. And there's a lot that plays out that really hits home for me, like quite literally, because there's all this stuff about like Northerners being hardy and Northerners being solemn and serious, but very pragmatic. And like, ultimately, Northerners being survivors. Yeah. And I know that I have some Southern friends in the audience, and this is nothing about you or about life. This is about general trends. 
But it seems as if people from warmer climates are not survivors the way in which people from colder climates are. It's your Vermont elitism kicking in. It's my Vermont elitism. Well, it makes sense, right? Like, here's a thing. In a given year, I can see a temperature range of over 100 degrees. It can be like negative 20 in the winter and 105 in the summer. That's a big range. I have to be ready for all of it. But in other climates, the temperature range is much smaller. You know, like if the coldest it gets in the winter is 40 degrees and the hotter it gets in the summer is like 115, that's still a smaller range than what I deal with in a year. Plus, I still have to shovel snow. (laughs) (laughs) So. Until Cersei gets out there with her shovel. (laughs) Cersei has no legs to stand on in making me believe that King's Landing is the center of the fucking universe. Because as it turns out, King's Landing seems to be very vulnerable. And we haven't even talked about climate change and the rising sea levels yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, I think that's why people want Winterfell, because it's just better. That's fair. Speaking of Cersei, where did um, her man friend slash brother end up? Didn't he have an ethical dilemma after the nuclear bomb? And didn't he get, like, weird about having sex with her anymore? Yeah, but I don't know what happened to him. Or do we not know yet? I don't, I don't know. What ha- I don't remember I don't him. I this feel has like been a really good recap, <laughs> courtesy of Hate Watch with us. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Dear media publications, if you're out there and looking for recappers, we're ready for you. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it looks like the Greyjoys are trying to get in on the fun, and the future is now, um, and we can expect more dick jokes. We can. Um, the preview included the line, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. Well, yeah, because, like, the Starks are wolves, like... It's on their banners, but then, like, the Star Kids also each had direwolves. And even though, like, George R. R. Martin didn't really tell us what direwolves are, like, you know that there's, like, a spiritual connection to, like, the nature through the wolves. And only the Star Kids could have it because, like, the Starks are the wolves, you know? Because they're, like, the first of men. I'm really happy that that just happened. <laughs> season five we've done or season six i don't know we talked about what what is happening what just happened what may happen (laughs) where we are where we're going let's talk about some coping skills that we use that we would like to offer up to you yeah so the first one is we have a dedicated slack channel called Mm -hmm. my watch has ended Mm -hmm. where we contain all of our feels about game of thrones if you are listeners want to join us in Slack, maybe we'll even let you. Oh my god, that could be super fun. Y'all are super welcome. Yeah. To join our Watch Has Ended. And then It'd we could really like, live chat together. We could. Just get in touch with us. You know where to find us. At Hate Watch With Us. Hit us on Twitter at Hate Watch With Us or send us an email, heywatchwithus at gmail.com and let us know that you want to be invited to the My Watch Has Ended Slack channel. Make that your email title, My Watch Has Ended. We'll be besties. In addition to that, um, (laughs) one of the things that we developed immediately last season, once we realized that the writers were out of control, was the dick count. Yep, the Game of Thrones dick count. In which we just kind of keep track of how many dick jokes there are in a given episode and how bad they are. It's worth noting that the dick joke count is different than counting the number of dicks that are revealed to us, (laughs) because that would not even be worth counting. There are so many penises 
Right. Which is like penises floating around in the wild and you can't escape them. But what was noteworthy, and this all started from that one Dothraki scene in the first episode, we literally started counting because all that happened for 10 minutes was like men making jokes about their penises. Right. And that was when we realized that the writers were truly lost and alone and also writing from a locker room. Right. Sorry to any of you athletes out there who don't spend all of your time making dick jokes. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I just don't know, like, why as a writer's room you decide that, like, that's the humor that your show needs. Right. I mean, I've expressed this before, but listeners, I really want you to take this to heart. Every single thing that you see and hear and experience on a screen had to be created. It does not exist without a human brain dreaming it into being, which means every single line of dialogue in this godforsaken show was written on purpose, which also means that every single dick joke was written on purpose. Not only was it written, it was approved by someone else. Yeah, I've I've delivered this rant before, so I'll spare you the majority of it. But remember that to get from the writer's room to the actual screen, to you, the viewer watching it, there are so many layers of bureaucracy. And so everything you see on screen has been approved by every person who has touched it. Yeah. Just remember that. The worst thing about Game of Thrones being such a sort of universal hit is that when you talk about how it can be flawed, (laughs) firstly, it's very easy to point out and very easy for people to understand. But secondly, it either ruins their experience of the show or they get mad at you. Well, and it's tough because Game of Thrones sort of came into being during that peak TV slash prestige TV slash golden age of TV bubble where it got conflated with a lot of that stuff, right? Where even though it was fantasy, it seemed like it was doing all the same stuff narratively as serious television. And me saying that and therefore implying that it's not serious television has nothing to do with it being fantasy and therefore not looking the same as prestige television. It has a tremendous amount to do with the fact that the writers are not talented enough to pull off prestige television with this content. Right. I mean, they they do try, They try real hard. But I think they fall into the trap of like, let's just have a million characters and a million things happening and distract from the fact that the plot is actually a total nightmare that isn't going anywhere. Right. To their credit, the show is an ambitious undertaking. It's technically impressive in terms of what they're achieving technologically and cinematographically. Cinematically? Cinematically. And just like scheduling wise. I give them points for that too. Yeah, like, in terms of production, there's a lot that is incredible. The art direction is beautiful. The music is beautiful. There are aspects of it where they display talent. It's just that the product in totality is not sort of made equally, shall we say. Right, and then you get to these weird spots where the Emmys happen and Game of Thrones wins for, like, best drama. And you're like, but... But but, it's not. But it's not. And that's even at baseline. That's before we start getting into, like, everyone's favorite rant of all of the different problematic choices that they made that didn't need to be made. Like, you know, throwing in 400 extra rape scenes that nobody asked for and all of the stuff that has sort of had these mainstream blowups. That's just at baseline. It's not achieving at that level. Right. And we're not here to be, like, book people versus TV people. No. or, Or anything like that. 
We're just here to to have a friendly hate watch. <laughs> and we're going to be doing it all season long. So some things you can expect from us on a listener to podcast level. We are going to be keeping the My Watch Has Ended channel alive, which you're welcome to join us, we said. We are going to be live tweeting on our Twitter at Hate Watch with us. So get hella hella hype. Use hashtag Hate Watch GOT if you want. Hate Watch GOT. And then other than that, we're probably just going to whine about it once in a while. We're, we'll keep the dick jokes alive. We will update you every Sunday after the new episode so that you know what the dick joke count was. Yep. As a companion podcast, we also highly recommend the Nerdette Game of Thrones podcast that comes out, I think, on a Monday after every Sunday's episode. I think episode. that's what they did last season. So it's Nerdette watches Game of Thrones with Peter Sagal. It's really great. It's incredible. It's one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. If you like our sensibilities, you'll like their sensibilities, I promise. They're also way smarter than we are. So smart. I mean, they're like paid professionals working for NPR, so that shouldn't be shocking. But they're like (laughs) super smart. And so just as we did a bind off episode for House of Cards every Sunday night, we're going to try to do a bind off for each episode of Game of Thrones. And it's going to be quick and dirty. And that is where we will update you on the dick joke count for the night. <laughs> it's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> so yeah, season seven starts on July 16th, which is the Sunday after this episode will go live. And we're looking forward to having to slog through that shit together. We'll be here to hate watch with you unless I get kicked out of the living room because <laughs> I'm going to be in a fight about who gets to hate watch and who gets to regular watch. <laughs> Yeah, we created some uh, relationship discord last season between Kelsey and her her male companion because he did not appreciate our hate-watching sensibilities. Whoops. We, we ruined all of his fun. Whoops. <laughs> so if you're out there and you're a listener and you genuinely enjoy Game of Thrones, I also apologize in advance for ruining all of your fun. You don't gotta listen to our bind-offs. You don't gotta listen to the bind-offs. You do you. Although you should we'll probably still appreciate listen to the bind-offs. As a side note, this literally just came to me. I can't believe I didn't think of it sooner. Cersei got power hair right before she nuclear bombed all of King's Landing. Oh, power hair, power Cersei doesn't really work the same way, but... No, it's not as good of a rhyme, but girls got power hair now. She does. Yes, yeah, son. Arya's got some power hair going on, too. That is correct. Yeah. So we're going to hop over to the rom-com universe, which is in some ways just as unsettling as that of Game of Thrones. And I think this is actually kind of a bittersweet moment for us. I think this might be our last rom-com education. It may very well be. We're coming full circle with part five here. So... Last time, we discussed romantic comedies and rom-coms for These Are Modern Times. And this time, we've got almost rom-coms and TV rom-coms on the docket. We do. So this is going to be kind of an expansion on rom-coms for These Are Modern Times to some extent. First, we're going to talk about almost rom-coms, so these are... Movies that really toe the line between being a rom-com and not being a rom-com. And then we're going to dive into TV rom-coms, which we have a lot of feels about, I'm sure, which seems to be where this format has found new life in recent years. So we're going to talk about that. Yeah, as like a pre-assessment of my learning thus far, can I attempt a pre-summary of where we're at in time? Let's do it. So 
I won't go through the whole thing because this is part five. Y'all have heard it before. But we've been coming from a starting point of media really liking stories about like heteronormative love. So man and woman getting married because of capitalism, basically. And we've gone through this long journey of that narrative becoming more advanced and wonky in a lot of ways. And so like that narrative went through a time where it was just like basic man and woman falling in love and getting married. And then man and woman overcoming some like different types of obstacles to fall in love and get married. And then it was all about fantasy love. We're in this place now where all of those tropes are established. So uh, there's like the best friend trope and the way that people fall in love and whatever, like the patterns are there. But because the film format version of that died so intensely in the mid-2000s, the format and tropes are being twisted into sort of new amalgamations of what they used to be, which is how we ended up in this place of almost rom-coms and TV rom-coms as being the final, because it's like, movie rom-coms are not what they were when we were teenagers, so where did the format end up? It ended up here. Right. Yay! Look at you go! I learned so many things. So, yes, we ended up here. Let's go through some of these almost rom-coms. The full list of all of our categories will be posted on our Tumblr, heywatchwithus.tumblr.com, so you can follow along. Yes. Um, so one that I know you're familiar with that's a pretty good example of this is Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, mm-hmm. which I think was a late 2000s maybe movie. Yep. It's based on a comic book, and yep. I don't know when the comic book came out, but a pretty very long time before the movie. Yeah, so this one um, features Michael Sarah as a, I think, a high schooler who... It features Michael Sarah as a Michael Sarah. As a Michael Sarah, yes. And it brings in a lot of elements of comic books, which was unique to this movie. <laughs> it's more about him and less about his romantical story, but that's a key part of the story. Well, and that's also like... A key, not trope, but narrative device of where the format is now. Right. The romantical plot is a subplot to the development of the protagonist. Right. So another movie like this, kind of, in that it's kind of out there, um, is Zombieland. That one is about a zombie apocalypse. Similar to Warm Bodies, but a little bit less on the romance and more in the typical zombie verse. It's also more mainstream. It is, but this one also has a subplot, but it's also often driven by um, by that plot about uh, Jesse Eisenberg trying to chase after um, Emma Stone and how all that goes down. That movie's pretty fun, as is Scott Pilgrim. Like you said, the romantical plot is a device to also have the main character learn about themselves and get to their own ends that are not necessarily tied to it, if that makes sense. That's a really long way to say that. Well, yeah, the end of the film is not the relationship in and of itself. The end is this other stuff, and the relationship is part of the overall journey. Right. Yeah, I got you, girl. So probably my favorite example from this category is a movie called Adam that came out in 2009. This one was about a 20-something-ish guy who has Asperger's and how that would sort of play out in a rom-com format, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't believe there's a happy ending. I haven't seen it in a while. There's less of a meet-cute, but it's all structured around the fact that he has trouble... um, interpreting emotions and sort of understanding that element of 
a relationship. So when he meets someone who he likes, he doesn't necessarily know what the appropriate reaction is, but understands it over time. And it's a really sweet movie. And it's a really, from what I understand, a very accurate and like appropriate interpretation of what that would be like. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a unique example of it's, it is a rom-com. It still makes you feel all the feels about rom-coms, but in a slightly different way. It has sort of a 500 Days of Summer ending, but it is a lot more thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the bar's set pretty low there. That's probably my top recommendation from the almost rom-com category, if you are into that. I can bring up some oldies but goodies. Um, About a Boy came out in the early 2000s, maybe, too. During peak Hugh Grant times. And this was in in almost a similar way to Adam, but not quite as spelled out that way. He meets a 15-year-old, I want to say, who has this like 12. crazy... 12-year-old. 12? Oh, sorry. Your wikipedia is... <laughs> I'm better, is and better I'm than my memory. So he meets a 12-year-old who has this crazy mom who is all over the place, and I think there's a lot going on there that I don't totally recall, but Hugh Grant is sort of, like, living off of, um, like, money that he's... Royalties of a song written by his deceased father. Thank you. (laughs) So he has nothing better to do with his time, and he ends up hanging out with this kid a lot, but it's to meet other women. And he does end up meeting a woman who is the mom of another student in this kid's class. So it's, you sort of go into it thinking that he's going to end up with the weird mom, but he ends up just helping her and like being her friend. And then that's way more diplomatic than the way that they put it on IMDb. Yeah. (laughs) And then they they end up meeting this other woman um, that he falls for in the end. It was really funny the last time I saw it. It's been a long time, so I don't know how well it's aged. But that's another one where the romantic plot is secondary to the personal plot. Another old one, older one that follows the same thing is Legally Blonde. Fucking love that movie. Everyone knows and loves. I won't take too much time describing any sort of plot here. But same deal. We care a lot more about Elle Woods than we do about who she ends up with. Right. Although in this one, her forming a relationship, even though it wasn't romantical for the majority of the movie, is the reason why she was able to like overcome the non-romantic obstacle in the story. She wouldn't have had the courage to deal with all of the shit that happened without Elliot being like, you know, don't listen to the haters. Right, exactly. Some more modern ones, um, Silver Linings Playbook, that was more about um, what's-his-face, that guy. Um, something, something, that guy. Blah, 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 male actor, uh, Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper. It's it's about his, um, he has some sort of thing happening in his life. He was in a mental health institution. That's right. And had a court-ordered stint. But it's unclear what his, like, issues were. Oh, do they never define? I don't think so. Illness? Let's see. Oh, here it is. Although Pat Jr.'s institutionalization was due to him beating up the lover of his wife, Nikki, he was diagnosed with bipolar. Nikki has since left him and has received a restraining order. Although he's on medication but doesn't like to take it and has mandatory therapy, he feels like he can manage on the outside solely by healthy living and looking for the silver linings in his life. And yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Also, he finds there are certain instances where he doesn't cope well. Like, great summarizing. Thank you for that. <laughs> It was helpful enough. That line, though. 
Yeah. That line was clearly written by someone who has never worked in mental health. No. Well, that's why I didn't want to jump to conclusions either. (laughs) But it's more it's more about his journey than it is about him meeting Jennifer Lawrence and like their thing. Although Jennifer Lawrence also has mental health issues, right? Yeah, she has her own stuff going on. And so the whole point is that they are on that part of the journey together, right? Yeah. It's not as thoughtful as it could be. (laughs) I've seen I've seen like a half hour of the middle of it somewhere. And that was immediately clear to me. Yeah. They're trying to tackle something infinitely bigger than they are really ready for or honestly had energy for. Yeah. It's fine. I added it here as like a a modern common example, but not necessarily the best example. Mm -hmm. Um, Sing Street is one that I have to mention. This movie is dear to my heart because it is made by John Carney, who made my favorite movie of all time once. Sing Street is like a newer movie for him that is similar. It takes place in Dublin. It's about this teenage boy who forms um, a rock band in 1985. And it's to win over this girl. And he wants her to be in his music videos. The way that it's described on IMDb, which is like creepy as I'll get out, is one day he sees her tall with long chestnut hair, a buttery complexion and big blue eyes, an enigmatically beautiful girl standing in front of the gate of his school. Wow. Yeah. Who is she and how could a boy ever get noticed by such a distant girl? <laughs> Easy. He would form a band. Exactly. <laughs> so John Carney's specialty is making very innocent movies that are endearing and wonderful and very musically oriented. I recommend all of them, but this one's more rom-commy than his prior um, movies. What else have we got? We can toss in La La Land if we want to. If we want to go there. As long as we're on, like, the musical theme. Well, yeah. and this one, I mean, this one's an interesting candidate. I haven't seen it, but, you know, hate watch drinking game, drink once. I've read about it. <laughs> um, so this one is interesting because it spends the entire film like circle jerking to the films of Hollywood past, right? Like it's really calling back to the singing in the rain era of song and dance love stories. Yep. There's definitely key elements of a rom-com. There's a meet cute. There's some of that like, will they, won't they? There is no happy ending. Hmm. Spoiler alert. Because it, it is still, after all, a rom-com of these are modern times. Exactly. You see how these all things, like, interplay, guys? They do. It's all connected. The history of film is all connected. There's a lot of douchery in La La Land. I did really enjoy it in a weird way. Mm-hmm. But it's full of douchery. So you've been warned. <laughs> well, and also, like, you and I have complained about this at length, but they were trying to pull off the Singing in the Rain song and dance film where everybody sings and acts and dances and they did it with two people who don't sing or dance in real life. Right. So, like, some of the better numbers are the ones that don't highlight Ryan Gosling or Emma Stone directly. <laughs> right. The difference with Hollywood now versus the time period that they're trying to riff on is that actors don't carry the types of resumes that they did once upon a time. Uh, some of them. Although Ryan Gosling was on Mickey Mouse Club, don't forget. Okay. So, by that logic... <laughs> You're also going to put, like, J.C. Chazay in a bunch of tap shoes and try to pass him off as a jazz singer and an actor. I mean, that's what he tried to do, is it not? I don't know that I would 
try to claim that all day long I dream about sex is a jazz song. But, but he did sort of riff on the style of a 1950s diner in the music video. So in that sense... <laughs> We're going to do a hate watch of the Mickey Mouse Club someday, guys. Uh, yeah. Hate watch, where are they now? Where are they now? <laughs> so it seems to me that the thing about almost rom-coms is they feel like they came at the bottoming out point of rom-coms in general. Yep. Like, a lot of these were sort of in that 2008 to 2010 zone, you know? As we were crossing into, like, peak TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it seems like this was the point at which people were saying, you know... We like making the format wonky. We like playing with elements of the format to prove a point narratively. But we don't want to be that funny. And we don't necessarily want happy endings because that's cliche. So what if we all fucked with it the exact same way? Right. So if the romantic comedy was the friend's first romance second version of this, the almost rom-coms were almost like the self-first romance second versions of this. Right, right. It's protagonist-centric with relationships as a B or C plot. Right. And just messing with it for the sake of messing with it. Right. Like, I can't speak to whatever the fuck happened to make Scott Pilgrim happen, and I love that movie (laughs) dearly, but they got away with some shit. They did get away with some shit. So speaking of some shit... Speaking of some shit and some fucked up format... Let's move on, should we? Yeah, Let's talk about TV rom-coms. So this is a space like I actually when Kelsey was putting together the rom-com education and you'll see this list on Tumblr. But when she was putting this together, I was reading through the list and was not expecting to have as much expertise with it as I do. But not only expertise, but like love for the titles on this list. These are mostly titles that have resonated with me. And it was one of those things when I was building this list that I kept thinking about like the key tropes and common recurring themes and storylines. And I was like, this sounds like that thing that happened on the show. Should I add TV shows? And I kept going back and forth. And I was like, I think that as movies have become the lesser category of the two and TV has become the dominant category, it's been sort of fortuitous that the rom-com format has evolved into television like it has in somewhat sneaky ways. Yeah, as you said just a moment ago, a lot of the dying off period at the end of the Badlands and the almost rom-coms that was happening as like the peak TV period was coming of age, you know, like that was happening as we were reaching this golden age of television where television had reclaimed a huge piece of the market and some amount of respectability. Right. And then I know, I remember when we were first talking about rom-coms and you were very, like, anti-rom-com. Yeah. I was trying to give you sort of a a push to come around on it. And I was like, well, why did you like Jim and Pam or mm-hmm. Ben and Leslie? And, like, what about those worked that doesn't work in these rom-coms? And I'm sure there are things. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying there aren't, but there's also things that are very similar. So that's where I was trying to be like, maybe there's some things to think about here. That to me, like this is this is a broader reflection on rom-com education. But like that has been the value of exploring this narrative structure is that 
you know, I thought I was dead inside and just hated anything relationship-based. And yeah, to your point, I loved Ben and Leslie. I still do. They are a major relationship model. I like Jim and Pam. I have issues with Jim and Pam. They're like a problematic fave, but I like them. And so what I didn't appreciate until the last couple of segments is that you had to get through the journey to understand where we're at now and how those relationships could come into being, because that form of writing has not always existed in television or in film, and it can only happen on the shoulders of all of the other relationship writing that has come before it. You have to watch the three different iterations of Spider-Man origin story before you get to the good (laughs) stuff, Kiersey. It's funny, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine over the weekend where I said something off the cuff about rom-com education and how I didn't think there was any value to the format and I'm starting to understand it. And she said something along those lines, like, what value is there? And I was like, because of film history and how narrative grows into being. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, narrative. Oh, narrative. So that's where we're at with TV rom-coms. We got through the die-off period, and then television became a BFD. And people were like, oh, wait, between having a choice of episodic and long-form storytelling in the same format, we have some flexibility to do some weird shit. And so how I've loosely defined TV rom-coms is that they have to have a major relationship arc plot point thing that spans a significant amount of time. It doesn't have to be the main character. It can be a minor recurring character, but it's usually one of the series regulars that has some sort of a romantical thing that happens to them over the course of a few seasons or a series. I would also throw in there as a qualifier that whoever that relationship arc is focused around, whether it's one or many characters, doesn't have to end up with anyone in particular. It can focus on multiple relationships over the series life, but it's about the fact that it's one cohesive story arc about the character experiencing the relationships. Right. So I think our oldest example on here is Friends. So do you want to talk about Friends? Yeah, Friends strikes me in that definition in particular because... Every character ends up pretty settled by the end of season 10 in a relationship in some form. But to get there, they all go through the episodic dating. And so you have the episodic structure of, you know, what quagmire will Rachel get into while dating this young hot man this episode to make Ross jealous? And then that dies in two episodes and doesn't matter. But over the course of the entire series, if you look at it as serialization, they are trying to tease out this whole thing between like Ross and Rachel or Monica and Chandler and Phoebe and Mike eventually. Like Phoebe's whole relationship arc story is about trying to find normalcy after having a fucked up childhood and not believing that she can ever have a healthy relationship. So on and so forth. I mean, Friends came about at a time when serialization in television was not what it is now. So the only really connecting thread are those basic relationship feelings. So it's like Monica and Chandler are insecure and get married and then have a happy marriage. That's the relationship arc. Phoebe's weird and doesn't think she'll ever be normal. And then Phoebe gets married to a man. Great. Ross and Rachel, will they, won't they? They will. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that's the one that leans most heavily on a lot of rom-com things. Yes. For sure. And then in the episodic dating pieces, you get, you know, little hits here and there of rom-com tropes, but they die with each of those tertiary characters. Mm -hmm. So Friends is like one of the, I 
don't want to say the earliest example because I'm sure there are many before that that I just have not been exposed to. I think the other thing Friends did is that a lot of the sitcoms before it were really family-based. Mm-hmm. Like sitcoms were a family genre. And Friends was playing with this narrative of like what is now considered to be the model for all semi-adult millennials, right? Where it's like this midway point of adulthood where you just live with roommates and see your parents a couple times a year and your friends become your family. Right. So that was somewhat novel in the 90s and early 2000s when the show was on the air. Right. And so Friends made way for a lot of Mm -hmm. similar shows, I think. How I Met Your Mother is probably the most direct example. Yeah, How I Met Your Mother is like the mid-2000s reboot of Friends. Right. I know we've talked at length about How I Met Your Mother before, but I would say that like the Ted and Robin story is a difficult yet very (laughs) (laughs) rom-com-y storyline that runs throughout. Barney to some extent, but he doesn't have that, like, Ted and Robin have the beat cute in episode one. True. That carries them all the way through seven or eight or nine, whatever many seasons there are. Sure. So that's where I tie it back to them first. But yeah, Barney to some extent also has a rom-com storyline. Scrubs, I think, is worth mentioning here. Yep. And you have more knowledge of Scrubs than I do. Yeah, I mean... This is similarly, like, if you're looking at it just at traditional rom-com structure of meet-cute, relationship-obstacle, relationship-outcome, you've got J.D. and Elliot, and then Turk and Carla. And to be honest, I've tried to finish the series multiple times and sort of fade out somewhere in the middle, so I don't really remember how things end for Dr. Cox and Jordan. At one point, they were, like, doing pretty well together, but I don't really know where they ended up. But that's one where, like, I think individual characters were coupled up very early, And then they just sort of drag them around for a little while. Yeah. If we want to talk about The Office, Mm -hmm. that's one where Jim and Pam, I think, are the obvious contenders for rom-com life. Michael and Holly. Michael and Holly in a... They become like the surprise upset. Yes. In like a smaller arc. Uh, I disagree, actually. Really? I think that they are the broader arc. Because if you think about where The Office starts in season one, Michael is really positioned as the only protagonist with secondary characters surrounding him. And that changes the ratio of that dynamic changes for sure. Yeah. But the whole point is that Michael is lonely and desperate and so badly needs love and friendship and validation. And he's seeking that through his job. And so you're watching his character arc overall nine, ten seasons, whatever, where he becomes happy and, like, falls in love with Holly and he gets to leave Dunder Mifflin because he doesn't need Dunder Mifflin to give him that satisfaction anymore. He has Holly now. Like, Holly is the natural end of his evolution. Yeah. And he had to go through a lot of shit to get there. Like, Michael, by the end of the series, is not the Michael that you saw in episode one. But that's also the only reason he's able to fall in love with Holly. That's fair. The reason I think that's bigger than Jim and Pam is Jim and Pam are coupled up from the start and you know from the pilot that Jim and Pam are going to be the will they won't they have the whole series and then they end up married in what, season four? Yeah. And then they have to fucking work as hard as they can to find any reason to create relationship barriers for them. Let's not talk about... Jim and Pam post-wedding, because I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) We will hate watch that time in life at some point, because I just have so much to say about it. We all do. I have so much to say. I can't see, like, a boom mic without wanting to yell at everybody about it. Right. For this time and place about (laughs) rom-coms, 
We won't be talking about boom mics. We will be talking <laughs> about rom-com specific things. Yes. So it's really Jim and Pam and Michael and Holly. I think you're right that Michael and Holly have a more defined and traditional rom-com arc overall than Jim and Pam do. Mm-hmm. Because you miss the beginning. Like the meet cute portion of Jim and Pam doesn't happen on screen. And then a lot of the well, they will, they counts, but... But it's only developed through the understanding that they will. Like, that's obvious all along. Yeah. And they are developed as a unit, not as two individuals who have to find each other. Right. So tell me about your feels about Ben and Leslie. I think that's another scenario similar to Michael, where when we start with Leslie, we know that she clearly needs something, and that something is probably a form of love and validation and support. But we don't know exactly, like, who or what that something will be. And we know about Leslie, or you're going to get some feels, this is a biased viewpoint. But we know about Leslie that she's an incredible human being and that her level of desperation is not equivalent to how amazing she is as a person. I understand that statement's problematic, but just take it with a grain of salt for right now. And then Ben comes along... And we don't know, like, they have a meet cute, they have a little bit of will they, won't they, but we don't know when they first meet that he is the natural end to that journey of self-realization for Leslie. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to get through some Ben development before we realize that the two of them are supportive of each other and good for each other. Right. And I appreciate that relationship more than most relationships I see portrayed anywhere because they're not good together because of the power of love. They are good together because of the power of those two individuals. You know what I mean? Like they are two good people who love and support each other. It's not that love on its own is some standalone inherent power that drives them. It's that they are like two good people who are good together. Yes, I think they are a shining example. I also saw someone in traffic today who had a... (laughs) like a dashboard scene, if you will, (laughs) like a little ceramic figurine scene. Oh my god. And it turned out to be the Wizard of Oz, but from far away, (laughs) I thought it might be, might be the tiniest park. (laughs) And I think what I really wanted in my life was a tiniest park dashboard figurine for myself at that moment. (laughs) So what percentage of the rest of your commute did you spend crying? I kept my emotions in check here, see? What do you think? I just cry on 93 South all the time? Maybe. (laughs) I was going to say, we've referenced no less than two times that just the sight of their kitchen makes us cry. So, like, I don't know who you think you are being all high and mighty (laughs) as if you have any self-control when it comes to Parks and Rec. You're over there trying to play it so cool. I just don't know why that... In my mind, the first thing I thought of when I saw a dashboard figurine was the tiniest park. Like, that's what concerns me a little. <laughs> Although, to be fair, why the fuck was it Wizard of Oz? <laughs> I don't know. Like, why is that? Who does that? If you're a c- ceramic figurine maker out there listening to us today. Specializing in dashboard figurines. <laughs> It would like to make me a tiniest spark figurine for my Subaru. Please email us at Hate Watch with us, and I will send you my home address. <laughs> Although I will qualify that all of those things are aftermarket and do become projectiles in the event of a crash. 
So, and so actually, as like a sidebar, and we don't have to go into depth on this, but I do think it's interesting that the office is on here, but Parks and Rec isn't. Only because I would argue that both of them have an equal amount of focus on romantic relationships. And I had a reason for not including Parks and Rec, and now I don't remember it. (laughs) Well, shit. I think it was because, in at least in the zeitgeist of TV commentary, mm-hmm. Jim and Pam was a lot more prominent a story in The Office as compared to Ben and Leslie. Sure. I don't sure. think it was a... Which I've always disagreed with, but... I don't think it was a lesser story, but it was less prominent in the conversation. No, that's true. I wonder how much of that has to do with timing, like if Jim and Pam just scooped Ben and Leslie. You know what they I mean? They did. They did. Because like Jim and Pam, I think, were a novel type of marriage... We'll just jump yes, to that point. they were. They were. In television when The Office aired. I don't think it's a relationship, in my mind at least, that has held up over time. Like, I felt very differently about it in the moment than I do re-watching it now. Yeah. There's certain things about Jim and Pam both, actually, as individuals that, like, don't feel as rose-colored glasses-y as they did at the time. And so between them being novel, they got all of the hype, but I think they also built the platform for Ben and Leslie to then become a thing and do better by that type of relationship. Right. And I think Parks and Rec in particular learned a lot from The Office in Mm -hmm. a lot of different ways that I think one of them was their depiction of relationship, especially past the marriage point. Yep. Yep. And I think they did it better, but it's because they had that foresight, forethought. Sure. Or hindsight, as it were. Hindsight. Hindsight. (laughs) One of those things. Hindsight is twenty thing. <laughs> um, so speaking of depictions of marriage that may or may not stand up or be novel, I want to throw in Catastrophe quickly. Yep. We've talked about it before, but it certainly deserves to be on this list. Also want to mention You're the Worst, which we've mm-hmm. talked about before. Go listen to our old episodes to hear more about them because I don't want to talk about them again, but they're great. <laughs> I know we have limited time to talk, so I want to talk about new things. New Girl, I want to touch on briefly because it's been on for six seasons or something by now. They've had a very long rom-com narrative that they've been working through between Jess and Nick. I know you're not familiar, Kirstie, but it's millennial roommates who all live together in a house. I mean, I got that from True American. Right. So you know that. I know that. And then Zoe Deschanel likes one of the guys or he likes her and it depends on the day who likes who. They tried to make them have a relationship in like season three and it didn't work out. I think the writers were like, what do we do now? So they had them sort of go their separate ways. And now at the end of this season, they ended up back together again. And there's only going to be one season left. So I'm curious of how they're going to wrap that all up. Because it seemed like that was the guiding thing of this whole series has been that they would eventually end up together. But it was a very rough, tumultuous couple of years. Mm. So I am curious to see how that rom-com ends up rom-com-y. Yep. It does have its moments. It has a lot of weak spots, but it does have its moments. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk about Jane the Virgin and not get too emotional. 
I will qualify for all of you that I had a really bizarre experience recently where I realized that I not only relate to Jane the Virgin, but there are things in my life that I have personal experience with that are mirrored in Jane the Virgin, which has never happened to me before. And I know that must sound really bizarre, but it's a long story and it makes absolute sense. (laughs) So I just want to throw it out there as like the starter. I'm not an artificially inseminated virgin. I've never been part of a love triangle. However, the number of things in my real actual life and history that mirrored what is happening in Jane the Virgin is like unbelievable. Anyway, so (laughs) what I think is interesting about like the rom-com part of Jane the Virgin is I feel like, especially in season four, which I know you're not caught up on, There is so much time and energy spent on soul searching about what it means to have a healthy, fulfilling, meaningful relationship with people in all parts of your life. And it comes into it with the understanding that relationships are complicated, often are tough and maybe terrible, but that intended outcomes or desired outcomes for that relationship drive whether or not you keep that relationship healthy and fulfilling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she... Falls in love with Michael. She falls in love with Raphael. She ends up marrying Michael, not Raphael, but at various points she breaks up with both of them before you get to the place where both sets of relationships become established. But her friendship with Raphael is very strong and extremely healthy, but they also spend a lot of time actually doing the work of talking about that with each other on screen, which is just like not a thing I feel like you see. Even though to me, one of the most compelling stories is how you navigate the complexity of like human life with another person. Yeah. I feel like storytellers like to skip the part where the characters actually have to figure that out together. Yeah, they hate that. Which is stupid because that's the whole point. That's like the whole story is what it takes to get to the point where you can actually have that relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, like life as it turns out is a really difficult thing. And humans are sometimes really bad to each other. And sometimes humans are perfectly good to each other, but it's life that's bad to those humans. And like, it's not easy to navigate that with another person. Mm-hmm. So anyway, what I love about it is that the whole basis of the show is every single character dynamic, like you could draw a web of it you see those characters actually sit down and take dedicated screen time to talk about the fact that trying to maintain a meaningful relationship with that person is not only worthy and important, but really fucking hard. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing about Shane the Virgin in terms of format is that it is a telenovela Mm -hmm. spoof almost. Yeah. It's making a mockery of telenovelas in some ways. But the rom-com storylines are not made fun of in the same way. Like, they are when it falls into the telenovela territory, but when they are just the -the run-of-the-mill, like, Jane's life stories, they don't call them out in the same way. Well, and even, like, Zoe and Rogelio, it's the same deal. Yeah. Yeah, I think in that sense, and this is in part just because every single creator behind Jane the Virgin is an unbelievably talented individual and does not deserve to roam the earth with the rest of us (laughs) plebes. But to that point, I feel like Jane the Virgin does give more respect to some of those rom-com, like, not tropes, but like, uh, 
rom-com things than rom-coms do themselves. Like, it gives them more respect than rom-coms do. No, I agree. agree. You know what I mean? Like, rom-coms, to me, especially in retrospect, it might have been different in their time. But in retrospect, they feel almost like they're spoofs of themselves. Like, they never took themselves totally seriously as a storytelling format because they knew they were sort of a second-class form of storytelling. Yep. Whereas Jane the Virgin feels like it's taking that and saying, no, these are still worthwhile stories. We're going to legitimize them by making telenovelas be the second-class citizen. Although I don't necessarily think they're, like, saying that about telenovelas. Like, they wouldn't give so much emphasis to that format if they really felt that was the second-class citizen in the room. No, no. But you see what I'm saying. They, like, work them against each other, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Use one to prop the other up. Yeah. And we owe you a full episode of Jane the Virgin, and I promise it'll happen. It will. But to cap off our rom-com conversation... I do want to also mention Master of None, um, specifically an article that I found on The Ringer that said that Master of None takes the trappings of your favorite romantic comedies and applies them to prestige television. Mm. And they are right. And I think that's worth mentioning briefly, especially talking about season two. Uh, I know I've mentioned it before. It's great. Go watch it. But this article on The Ringer specifically talks about how, like, the rom-com has moved to TV and how Master of None is really working a lot of those tried-and-true tropes and plot points uh, in a new way with a, like, prestige lens on them to make you think that they are a little bit more than they are, maybe. Which is super interesting. I've only gotten to, like, episode four of the first season of Master of None, and... In those early episodes, it's all about family stuff, primarily, and, like, work stuff. So it's interesting to know that we're, like, headed in the direction of rom-com land. Yeah, and I think the thing with Master of None is it's very episodic, so... Right, right. It's not going to be necessarily a full season arc, but there will be a full episode where you'll be like, oh, it's pulling from all these different things that I recognize. Yeah, And then the next episode will be, like, a family story, and that's totally different. But there are a lot of different things straight out of a rom-com. There's stuff like in the second season, like he meets a girl randomly in a meet-cute setting. Like he has a dinner reservation at this place that's hard to get a reservation at. And she is also standing there and is like, oh, I thought I had a reservation, but I don't. And he's like, well, you can sit with me. So it's Mm. so typical and standard. Um, He meets her, they like hit it off. And then he gets her number, she leaves, whatever. And then the next day his phone gets stolen. So he doesn't have her number and he can never basically contact her again. But it's like (laughs) such a, it's such a rom-com setup that you're like, oh, of course. And like, I haven't even finished that season because I've been in House of Cards Purgatory. But my, in my mind now is like, well, they could meet each other again, maybe. I don't know. Well, yeah, that's super funny because in a, in a rom-com, they absolutely would. Like, they'd right. either meet each other again right. at another restaurant, or there would be some crazy setup with, like, the find my phone feature. Something would happen that would bring right. them back together, even though his phone got stolen. Right. So it is a really interesting play on that dynamic to then be like, oh, they just will never talk again. Bye. Right. Well, there's also another plot of, like, him with his other girl who he's more seriously in love with, I think, but who's with someone else. Mm. So that goes back to, like, old classic rom-coms almost. And how that has at least played out so far has been very traditional rom-com. 
And I'm not sure how that ends up playing out either. But from the first half of the season that I've seen, it's been spot on. It's been really interesting to watch. That's super interesting. So we have the Bachelor family of products on here. Yeah. And that's yeah. inspired by an article by my favorite writer to name drop, Catherine Van Arendonk from Vulture and the Appointment Television podcast. During Nick's season of The Bachelor, she wrote this piece about how all of the shows, Bachelor, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, function as rom-coms for these are modern times, since rom-coms are not what they used to be. Mm-hmm. And I believe the first season of The Bachelor was, what, 2002? Something, Something like, like that. that, yeah. So The Bachelor was really forming and coming of age during peak rom-com season, as it were. Yep which we talked about in part three. And so my ponderment is if you could draw it out on a timeline and see where the overlaps are between when these things started like bleeding into each other. My ponderment is like, did The Bachelor and its role as a semi-rom-com make way for these more modern television rom-coms? I mean, we talked about Friends as being a basis for it, which Friends started in the mid-90s. So that would obviously be more foundational but i'm thinking about jane the virgin maybe since there's so much that show that's based around like her fantasy of romantic love and whether or not that is viable in real life you know i can't help but feel like some of those questions wouldn't be asked in television without the bachelor yeah i think that's fair that historical context though that historical context (laughs) yes i am not super familiar with all of those things yeah But I think that's a very valid argument to make. Yeah. I mean, Catherine's argument was basically like, you know, the whole show is a will they, won't they, right? Like they're Mm -hmm. just with 23 possible love interests versus one. It's a serialization of that relationship building rather than episodic dating. Although in fairness, there is like the episodic element because it's a reality TV show. Right. So there's like episodic plot points with individual, I don't even know, contestants, I guess. I never know how to refer to them because they're not like people, but they're not characters either. (laughs) They're not people. They're not people. Um, Sorry, I'm not trying to sound like a senator. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) so there's the serialized plot of the primary contestant, like the Bachelor's love arc and like whether or not they'll find love and what it means to their self-actualization to find love. And then there's like the episodic dating with the individual contestants. And then there's the serialized arc of like the contestant that they're destined to fall in love with. And then within that, there are a ton of romantic comedy tropes, mostly grand gestures. Like the entire show is a series of competitions of grand romantic gestures. Right. And then there's like the more cynical side of it, which is I could get into like a rant about hyperconsumerism and the commodification of love. I'll spare you, but that's, like, basically Mm -hmm. the other part of this, right, is, like, where love starts or ends versus the depiction of love via rose petals. You know what I mean? Right, 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 right. So I think that creates this, like, swirling vortex that brings aspirational love in the form of peak rom-coms to television. And then television writers look at it in a television format as opposed to a film format and say, okay, here's a baseline of, like, heteronormative love. How can we fuck with that? Yep. That was a lot of words, so I'm going to present that as, like, my assessment of learning for this category in general. I think that is a good assessment. Yeah, that feels like the natural conclusion of, like, that wave. 
Like, you had to get through mm-hmm. stories like The Bachelor making it onto television for more complicated or differentiated stories to make it Right. Up. And now we're here. And now we're here. <laughs> and now we're in a landscape of rom-coms in general where, like, shit be all kinds of cray. All kinds of cray. And everyone likes them. There's a rom-com for everyone. They've been disguised well into other types of stories. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So that was what I was just going to say when you said not everyone likes them is I do think that there is still a stigma, and it's the stigma that I walked into this series with, which is like rom-coms equal bad, because it's Mm -hmm. a type of media, and as we all know, different genres and media consumption are part of the commodification of your identity, so you can't be a whole person if you like rom-coms, is like that line of logic. Right. And so I was talking to someone, the same person I mentioned earlier, who I was talking about, like, the value of rom-coms as a narrative. Yeah. And her questioning that. And this person also shares my affinity for Jane the Virgin. Also loves that show with an undying passion. Mm -hmm. And, like, you can't love that show, and this is nothing about this individual, but, like, generally, you can't love that show and also say, as a blanket regulation... I hate rom-coms. Right. Which is the lesson of rom-com vacation. That is the lesson of rom-com vacation. It's like everything had to go through an evolution. You had to climb through the badlands to find the oasis of stories that mean something to you. And at the end of the day, different stories resonate with different people. And the whole point, in my mind, of there being such a diverse media landscape is that people have choice of what narratives they decide to stick with because of how they resonate with you. That's it. That's it. Good job. You get an A-plus on your rom-com vacation. Yay! I now have my master's degree you in do. rom-coms. <laughs> I'll sign the certificate for you and frame it. <laughs> You'll be the dean of rom- rom-coms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am really grateful that we did this exercise. I know for you listeners, like, five episodes seems like a lot of time to spend on one particular subject. But I honestly do feel like I came light years from where we started a month or two ago. And now I owe Kirsty some homework of a topic of her choosing. <laughs> yeah, I think I do feel like this is going to be a recurring theme. I think we both have some stuff to explore. Mm-hmm. And I said this a couple episodes ago, but like I would challenge all of you out there to like do a similar exercise for yourself. It doesn't have to be this in depth, but if there is something that you have felt like you are too superior for or like otherwise above, it might be time to explore that art form because whether or not there's directly something there for you, like there's nothing there for me in two weeks notice, but where two weeks notice falls in the broader media landscape does actually mean something to me. There you go. There you go. So I'm so glad. Yeah. Media literacy matters, guys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. (laughs) And shouts to you, Kelsey, because this was a really effective curricula. So thank you. I'm so glad. You're full of sage wisdom. (laughs) If you listeners out there feel like I've egregiously left something off of this list, this is your last chance to tell me about it. Please tweet us (laughs) at HateWatchWithUs or send us an email at HateWatchWithUs at gmail.com. Join the conversation. If you want the full list, you can also find it on our Tumblr at HateWatchWithUs.tumblr.com. Hmm. And if you have other suggestions for stuff that you want us to explore, like, I know one blind spot we both share is we hate horror as a genre. I'm not asking you to make us watch horror movies. I'm just saying, 
If there are other things that you think would be worth exploring in a longitudinal way, the way we just did with rom-coms, send us that information, send us title suggestions, send us genre suggestions. Media is an ongoing conversation. Yeah, please don't make us watch too many horror movies, though. Please don't. I've seen like two Saw movies. That's all I can really handle. That's enough for us. I saw Hannibal once. Gross. (laughs) (laughs) And look, I know I just lectured y'all on like pushing yourselves out of your comfort zones and not thinking you're above anything. I'm not above horror. I just don't want to watch it. I'm just kind of Push yourself out of your comfort zone, but don't make yourself puke. Yes. Yep. Good advice. Actually, you know what? You should probably just like write that down and put that in your cubicle. That's true. (laughs) That's what I'm here for, guys. All right. Uh, So join us next time for our 20th episode. Woo! (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks. Goodbye. Bye. Wait, so it's going up on the 11th. What what does... Is it starting on the... For the 16th? When does Game of Thrones start?